Hello and welcome to the Two Heads podcast. Thank you very much for joining us once again. My name is Jonathan Rice and I am joined as always by Sarah Shiraz. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Jonathan. And very pleased to welcome a very special guest to our episode this week, the former schools minister, Lord Knight, Jim Knight. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I'm delighted to join you. We have Jim with us. Jim's, of course, now a Labour peer and has recently published the Beyond Ofsted report as a result of that inquiry to which Jim has chaired. So we're going to be spending most of this episode looking through that report in some detail uh, and having a conversation about that. But just before we start that, I know you'd both like to say a word about Tim Brighouse, who has sadly died this week. Sarah, do you want to, to just start there? Yeah, obviously woke up on Saturday morning to the news that Tim Brickhouse had died, an absolute giant in English education. And, you know, the tributes to him, somebody commented about, I hope they said these things to him before he died, because they have just been so heartfelt and so wonderful. And sometimes it feels too late to say them after, although I hope they are of huge comfort and pride to his family, uh, to whom we send our condolences and our love. There was a wonderful piece this morning that the TES has published that Ed Dorrell has written. And just a quote from that for me, in Tim's personal mission, his life's work, his moral compass and his pragmatism, we can see a model for rebuilding the confidence in our education system. There are so many stories of his kindness, of his humanity. Ed Dorrell also said that he cherished classroom teachers. Boy, would we love to be cherished as anyone working in school at the minute by the system that we're working in. It's not little. It's massive. The humanity that he wanted to bring to teachers and to school leaders that we aim to replicate within our schools to our families and their children. And just to feel that that was utterly important to him. Stories that when he was working in Birmingham and some of the schools were in really difficult circumstances, he didn't ever go to a school without knowing something it was doing brilliantly and told them that's the reason why he was visiting. You know, it's just such a different culture, a different climate from how it feels, the relationship that we have with you know, with the uh, politicians and our leaders at the minute. So just, you know, it's a, one of those ones where you just want to, as Dr. Zeus would say, not cry because it's over, but smile because it happened. You actually want to think about the joyous thoughts of somebody who was so committed to a system and so committed to the profession and just we wish he'd run the system a bit, you know, all of us for him. But we also wish that other people would just follow in that footstep of that bravery. Some things were very simple, but they were so profound. Yeah, look, I agree very much, Sarah. And you know, Tim was a really lovely man. Ed's right. You know, he had a really strong moral compass. He cared so deeply about children and was impatient to do better for children. You know, when he was in Birmingham, when he was in Oxford, uh, when he was the first London schools commissioner overseeing London Challenge, which was yeah you know, something that I had some association with, and we were very proud of what we achieved in in London with that and you know I would see Tim periodically you know he interviewed me for his last book about schools his sort of magnus opus that he wrote with Mick Waters Uh, and you know as you say he cared deeply about children he cared deeply about the workforce he understood the importance of respecting professionalism and respecting uh, teachers and valuing teachers and he didn't he didn't make this sort of current assumption, I guess, which is that if you're rigorous, it means that you're really harsh and you give people a hard time and you make them fearful. 
you're rigorous by thinking things through fully and being ambitious, but being progressively ambitious, not regressively so. And and I think we yeah we we will miss him. I'm sure we will keep trying to refer back to his thinking and and the leadership that he showed um, everywhere where he had an impact, and and it was a huge impact. So the book you referred to, Jim, about our schools, him and Mick were now planning a second book, and they had these what they called provocations. So they've got this number of statements where they wanted to rile people and get them to then express their views about them. And uh, we were privileged enough to be at the Festival of Education in the summer, and he was on so many panels and when he wasn't on a panel he was in the room listening to other people but that mischievous nature that both him and Mick have that they would want to provoke and have provocations I just thought was a wonderful way and I I don't know how far that book has got at the moment and whether that will come out or not but I'm hoping that maybe Mick will continue that work because that would be a wonderful legacy to to have wound us all up a bit and stirred us all up a bit and get us all thinking about some controversial issues that you know actually are the core of what this should all be about and maybe isn't at the moment. Yeah, partly because we're also at an inflection point, I think, in the direction of travel for education. Uh, you know, do we stick with what we've been doing for the last 50, 60, 70 years, or do we make a shift to account for what's going on externally in education and the big changes that are going on in the world, uh, the, the very different environment that young people are going to be leaving school to go into in the next 5, 10, 15 years and um, and we need that provocation. Thank you both for those words which I'm sure will be echoed by the uh, by the whole profession. Thank you. And that leads us on uh, fairly seamlessly I think to the subject of today's podcast which is the inquiry that you've led Jim entitled Beyond Ofsted and this very weighty report, I think, has been published in the last last couple of weeks or so, hasn't it? Yeah. Would you mind just sort of taking us through the origins of the report, who commissioned it, how you came to chair it, and also who else is involved in, in producing it? Sure. Well, the National Education Union had been doing a series of reports, of which this is one, they did one to primary, one to secondary, you know, been trying to think some things through in policy terms, um, where they've been using... Uh, independent academics from mostly from the UCL Institute of Education. And they had engaged Jane Perryman and Alice Bradbury from the UCL to write a report around the future of school inspection. And they wanted someone to chair the report to make sure that she or he had signed off and agreed with it uh, in terms of recommendations and to chair an advisory board. And Mary Bowsted, when she was joint general secretary uh, over a year ago now, met me for lunch in some Pancras station. It was one of those occasions when she was sat before I arrived. I arrived and the person who sat me didn't know that she had arrived. So we sat at separate tables and hadn't seen each other for 40 minutes before we then eventually sat together. <laughs> but so we, so we had a truncated conversation, but in which she persuaded me that'd be a good idea for me to chair it. And I wanted to do it because, you know, I chair EACT, Multi-Academy Trust, 28 schools. We'd, at that point, I'd, I'd been doing that for just over a year and I'd seen already the, the inconsistency around the quality of the inspection reports and the people doing the inspection uh, in terms of their 
understanding of what they were looking at and then saw the high stakes nature of it and believed that there was there was a job to do to look at whether or not there was a better way of doing it. So we got on with that. An advisory board was put together and then we had the shocking death of Ruth Perry that then followed with her sister, Julia Waters, leading a campaign for people to to notice and understand the impact of inspection on people in the workforce and a desire for a, a, a proper duty of care and a, a proper sense that whatever we put in place to hold schools to account is done at a, a human level that doesn't cause the misery that it causes at the moment. And that sort of changed the work of the report in a way. I mean, in theory, it didn't change it. We still collected a lot of evidence, we got a, a large survey that we carried out online, a bunch of focus groups looking at other people's surveys, survey by parent kind, talking to experts, including Tim Brighouse, about uh, their thoughts, talking to some people overseas, looking at what other jurisdictions around the world do so that we were always going to do that and that's exactly what we did but Ruth's death basically meant in my head that we were no longer writing a report to persuade people that we needed to change school inspection we were now writing a report to set out how we might implement the change in school inspection that had become inevitable so it, it just shifted things so that we we need to go into some more detail and actually the other thing that happened in response i think to ruth perry's death was the shadow secretary of state bridget phillipson i think at the ASCAL conference um earlier this year around easter this year announced some things that she thought should change that we should look at again at the single phrase judgment that we should look at the use of school report cards that we should separate off safeguarding into annual compliance visits that we should look at the inspection of school groups and multi-academy trusts and we in my head too i was then thinking well if that's what an incoming labor government might want to do it would be interesting for us to to just take those principles and see how you might apply those in practice. I think, as you say, that the Ruth Perry's death gave this so much sharper focus because until then, it you know, it was like, well, we have to have offset. That's how schools improve. And head teachers round table actually calls for a pause in offset right back in February 2020 before obviously we went into lockdowns and everything changed for a few years um, and then one of their lines was it's not that this doesn't improve schools it's actually the opposite because we as school leaders aren't doing what our gut instinct and our context says is what's needed to improve we're trying to dance to a tune and brave people have always said okay well we won't but when the stakes of that inspection became so high you couldn't risk not doing that and that's the thing for me Thinking back um, over the, the years of the inspections I've had, there was a really good blog written last week and published a lot on Twitter by someone who goes to South Gloucestershire head and they're a primary head teacher. And that went back through his head teacher career and how every single time there was an inspection what to change. And my time frame was perfectly matches with his. And I think I'm on about 15 either inspections or um, monitoring visits. 
But the idea that the stakes have got where they are and relatively quickly escalated so enormously just brought this into focus so much that it isn't just it isn't the best way to improve schools, that it is ultimately one stopping school improvement in many ways and secondly deterring people from wanting to be the leads of that school improvement I think that's for me what you know your report summarizes so well is not just we you know it would be nice to do this better it's absolutely imperative that we do this completely differently I think in response to all of that we had to ask ourselves a question does it cause more harm than good as it now is and that's why, in the end, we recommended as our final recommendation, a pause in the inspection, uh, the routine inspections until we've found a better way that we can agree on to proceed. We do think that there is an important role for inspection within the school system. So we're not calling for the abolition, but we are calling for for a pause. And in a way, it goes back to two other things that I would just say in passing. The first of all is the sort of theory of change, I suppose, which is one where, and we see it not just in schools, we actually see it in with the Care Quality Commission, we see it with, in police, we see it with prison service, we see it across the public sector, which is a theory which says, okay, let's resource an inspection service to go in and look at a thing produce a snapshot report that just tells the story of what it sees against a an inspection framework of, of of what we want not use that expertise to guide how things should improve just report what do we see how does it measure up and then name and shame produce a single phrase judgment and uh, hope that that naming and shaming experience creates a culture of fear that means that management drives improvement. Now, I think a theory of change based on fear rather than a theory of change based on support is just the wrong approach. And I think that that's an endemic problem across our public sector. And it's one of the reasons why public sector workers are leaving in droves, why we have such an, a retention problem in schools, but elsewhere. I would love to see a, a change Yes, I'd love to see a change in government, but I'd love to see a change in uh, the government's thinking about inspection so that we move to a more supportive system and a less fearful one. And then finally, the second thing I was going to say was some reflection. And Sarah, if you've had 15 inspections, you'll be able to reflect on this far better than I can. But my sense was that we used to have large, well-resourced teams of inspectors who had come for a week. And you therefore felt that the, the level of resource was sufficient for them to spend enough time to understand the context of a school. I mean, you, know, you might trip over inspectors with clipboards you know, falling out of cupboards, but um, you at least had a sense that the final report was a, was a reasonable description of what they'd seen whereas the resourcing of Ofsted now is such and the cutbacks are such that you've just got you know one two three inspectors for one and a half two days and it's hit and miss whether or not you get anything that reflects the reality and and everyone's been performative everyone has has 
put on this show of what they think inspectors want to see rather than the inspector seeing what what is real. In reading that blog last week, I reflected back on the time when we had three inspectors for a week in a relatively small primary school. They were all local authority workers within a another local authority, and they really wanted it to be discursive. They were giving us ideas and they were taking ideas, which was a little bit outside the framework, but it felt very healthy. And ASCA was in a particular context. It had a hugely fluctuating uh, community. And months and months and months later, when the performance leak tables came out, the lead inspector phoned me up and said, those leak tables do your school no justice whatsoever. The story you were trying to tell us does not fit that data. And we thought... You really got our school. You really got the community we were working in. And you also got why, you know, that that sort of labelling of a school and a lead tape like that didn't work. But for him to have kept that in his heart and mind for, I'm talking six months or so after the inspection, to phone me up and say, keep doing a really good job and I'm sorry for you today because those that lead table. So that was yeah. a very, very different thing. I had an inspection earlier this year and, yeah, so much more superficial. Another interesting point that I've come across in the last week or two is that both John and I work in local authority maintained schools. And I've got a colleague who works in a one academy school and in a maintained school. And she's saying that the resources that arrived on the front door for the Ofsted in an academy trust, where everyone from the CEO down was there to support. And the local authority, even if they've got a very strong view of the school, they're not allowed to have anyone sitting alongside the head teacher supporting them with the inspector and I didn't know they weren't allowed I thought they maybe chose not to or didn't know as well enough to do that but ultimately those two things are very different experiences for those school Mm. leaders than they are you know it just doesn't that doesn't feel level either there's no one there's no you know cavalry to come and support me in that process and obviously Perry was in a maintained school and some of the LA actions were identified quite clearly through the the inquest but I just found yeah very very different experience from years ago and very little support uh, that we can actually draw on as as maintained school leaders in that context. Yeah, interesting. And and Jonathan, is it the same for you? And in, in the federation, they don't can't yeah, shouldn't. No, absolutely, absolutely. And our heads of school, yeah, they are treated as head teachers, and they're they're in the inspection in the same way that Sarah's described. Yeah, yeah. I do find that very interesting, and, and the inequity of that. You know, in the mat that I chair. You know, with 28 schools, quite a lot of the governance responsibility on a day-to-day basis is delegated to the executive team within the MAD. So they will come perhaps theoretically as part of the governance side during a, a, an inspection and be there to support. But it's very much there to support the head and support the team. Mm. And there is clearly an inequity relative to other types of schools. So you, you do mention that specifically in your introduction, don't you, that maths now need to be held properly to account in a more transparent way. So that's something obviously that's been a bit of a theme through this, that, um, you know, we're obviously we're federated schools and we're in the lo- with local authority schools. But within I've always been surprised how a school is within a trust is just judged on the school and the trust where they've said there'll be more accountability. It doesn't seem to have moved forward. So how how do you imagine that? moving forward in the in the world that you're hoping to create and, and paint a picture for us in, in the report? Well, one, there is just a, something that feels wrong that, you know, in, in my case, EACT has roughly 
annually spends about 150 million pounds worth of public money. And so I'm uh, chair of a board responsible for that and you know, have an executive team that do a great job in responsibility and accounting for that. But we're not inspected on that. We're not held to account for that. There's, we're regulated. We're heavily regulated by the department, by the uh, ESFA. But that's all done behind closed doors. You can't see that. All that you can see publicly is the annual report that includes the accounts. And that feels insufficient for the for the scale of what we're doing, frankly. Um, so, yes, like many others, I think uh, that the the school group should be inspected. What we then specifically, when we're thinking about this, and this goes right to the heart of, of our recommendations. So this will take a short while for me to go through the steps. But if you say, and we agreed, that safeguarding compliance should be done more regularly and that we should ensure that that uh, element of inspection was done, uh, was sort of sharpened up because, you know, we've gone through a period with outstanding schools historically, then not being inspected for years and years and years. And those safeguarding inspections, incidentally, need to be proportionate. You know, if you've if you've got a little bit of a problem on your paperwork, that shouldn't mean that you become inadequate and you've got all the consequences of that. Um, If it's if it's not about children's safety, but about bureaucracy, then let's get that into proportion. But the children's safety is is fundamentally important and we need to get that inspected annually. So we agreed with that. And then you're going, so then what does Ofsted do if we're separating that off? Well, what we think needs to happen at a school level is borrowing from those schools, uh, those school jurisdictions around the world. Two things. One, more transparency of data through publishing that for parents and then being able to, to cut that in lots of different ways and being clearer about more things than just test scores around what we measure and what we publish and what we worry about for for schools and for children. So more accountability to parents through data, if you like. But then there has to be a human commentary on that data because we know from you know, the previous framework that if you just look at the data, it skews things. So you need an expert external view on the school that will come in and interpret some of that data for parents uh, and will work with the school leadership around improvement. So that school improvement partner would be there working with the school. And we thought, ah, oh, should that school improvement partner work for Ofsted? It's an option. And then you've got something that's not too radical, a shift. But we thought, no, actually, we're, we're unpersuaded that having a government inspector come in and do that support work is the right vibe. So we concluded that a better thing would be for the governance of the school, so the multi-academy trust, the local authority, the federation, the single academy trust, depending on what model you're in. They have a responsibility to appoint a school improvement partner externally. Ideally, those would be serving heads, so you can start to get the professional development with heads supporting each other. Um, but they appoint the school improvement partner. And then Ofsted's role is to inspect the school group and look at whether or not their governance of school improvement 
the decisions that they were making around appointing the right person as a school improvement partner or persons, and the response to the data, the action plan that the school improvement partner, the school leadership and the governance will have agreed for each individual school in respect of how they need to develop next, has all of that process and has the way that's been done in governance terms been done sufficiently well and that the inspection should look at that and that so you then moving the unit of inspection for Ofsted up from the school level to the group level you then create something that also is affordable where you've got annual safeguarding uh, compliance visits and then you've got group level inspection on a periodic basis every three to five years. Can I just ask about the governance element of that, Jim? Because that, that's quite um, that's quite prominent in the recommendations, isn't it? I understand in in terms of mats, that is the executive group generally, isn't it? And the trustees, yeah. obviously, behind them that provide that yeah. governance. What about in in a local authority context where we still have local boards of governors and our relationship with the local authority tends to be a, a quite considerably more distant these days? Are we still talking about governance within that sort of? local elected volunteers kind of context i'm not getting into trying to deconstruct local governing bodies you know they they work well where they work well and and that's uh that's not something to to disrupt you know i remember when i was schools minister and working with andrew adonis on on the academies program our thinking then about academization was where Essentially, it was, it was it was about governance. It was about saying, in some circumstances, individual schools have been really poorly governed, and we need to take the governance away from local authorities and put better governance in place. And and it was a quite a bespoke intervention, as opposed to what then Michael Gove did in in sort of industrialising that, and I think ignoring governance in in the process. He so, was extremely rude to them, wasn't he, actually, I think? Suggested yeah. that they were not worthy of the role in any way at all. Yeah. Um, so I would say that this is actually at a school group level. So I would say Ofsted should come and look at, you know, the, the local authority and what how they're adding value in school improvement terms and holding them to account for that. Now, there are other ways of doing it. There are other ways of doing all sorts of things, and there are other ways of, of of moving school inspection. And some would argue, well, for as long as they're local authority schools, then then Ofsted could should come and look at their governance of school improvement and they can apply the model consistently in that way. I think there are issues around the scalability of that, and whether or not local governing bodies have got, frankly, have got the appetite for that. But once you get to a group level and you're taking responsibility on for several schools, then, yeah, at that point, you're saying, is the group adding value? Uh, Is the local authority adding value? And we should inspect that. I think what you described there is such a completely different set of relationships than we've got at the minute. You know, six used to exist. We were with a group of maintains heads last week and someone was yearning for the return of their sick because actually they found that a really healthy relationship. And um, there's a local government report, isn't there, into the relationship between schools and their local authorities. And that describes several different models. But if you are going to improve and if you're going to have support to improve and have an external body monitoring there, surely that needs to be a trusting relationship. That means you can be Mm -hmm. honest about where your school sits and I think we've got to the point where 
honesty in your relationship with offset is just not there because you don't know what inspector you're going to get we've said before that we've both had experience of some very positive and kind offset inspections we also know of myriad examples where that's not been the case but if you could hide something or not have it exposed that that's never going to improve stuff whereas you know the testing that your evaluation of your own school right back in the old days we had that form as part of your offset form your s3 or your s4 that you had to complete with self-evaluation and actually somebody testing that your self-evaluation is right surely that's the best indication of good leadership is that you know your school you know where it is you're willing to be honest and trust and talk to someone about that but that's not the relationship you described in the safeguarding world within the local authority we work in there's an, an audit system where we have to fill out safeguarding audits but also if you've got a problem or an issue you know who to phone to get advice on that because you're open around I don't know where to go with this you know safeguarding can bring you things you've never thought of even after 20 years as a head teacher but they feed that into the audit they think it's healthy that we're ringing them to ask for advice and support if they never heard from us we either haven't got anything going on or we're not seeking the right help and those relationships that you've just described where there's an honesty and a transparency about where we are where we're aiming to go can you check are we you know, have we got the right plans in place? It's just a world that we used to live in and just feels a very mm. long time ago. Yeah, and I think we need to go back to a version of that now or go forward to a version of that. And, and you know, it, it, I, I'd sort of repeat, I suppose, do they add value? You know, does the group add value? Does the federation add value? We do say, I think, in the report that local authorities need to have some help in having the capacity in many ways um, to be able to do this sort of work again. And if they're not up for it, then they should say so. And in which case, I'm afraid, probably that then means that the schools will need to academise so that they can then get that capacity and get that improvement capacity. But that's not what a lot of people who work in the local authority sector want. And I would much prefer that the local authority gains the capacity. And part of this also, I guess, Sarah, is I very strongly think that we need to have a clearer vision for local authorities and their relationship with schools than we do at the moment. And that this needs, you know, beyond what's in my report, what's in our report, there's some more work to be done on that. You know, Bridget Phillipson, again, for, for Labour, has said that though we want to return unambiguously the admissions authority work to local authorities so that they are properly overseeing who goes where um, and that other admissions authorities don't cheat the system. I think that's really important. I think it's important that we better resource local authorities around other aspects of children's services. You know, we recommend a national safeguarding authority, partly because we see an inconsistency in the quality of safeguarding expertise that exists in local authorities and that the LADO function is, is really variable. And we need to up our game. You know, local authorities, if local authorities as a statutory safeguarding authority are not consistently strong enough, in exercising that responsibility. We've got to fix that because they've got such important responsibilities in respect of children that they've got to have a consistent and expert understanding of safeguarding. But that then applies to other things in, in respect of children's services. One of the reasons why teachers are leaving their profession in droves, in my view, is because they're having to triage 
so much that local authority children's services used to have the capacity to be able to take care of for them. And, yeah, they're, they're taking on the burden of all of these problems that exist in outside of schools, in, in homes and communities, and because they're the only service for children that's left. And we've got to fix that if we're going to run a successful school system. That's all about the vision for local authorities. Jim, can I just ask a broader question from your experience in government? What are the mechanisms by which this sort of change will take place? What needs to happen within government? And who do you need to convince to get something like this into a green paper, white paper, onto the statute book? How does it it happen? Can I throw into that, Jim, what you think any outcome from the select committees looking into offset will be and whether that gets any weight to a change? Because obviously they've, you know, they've received an enormous number of responses in a very wide range. And does that have any power? Does that add to the the story, as it were? Well, Sarah, yes, it does add to the story. And I, I met with Robin Walker last week the chair of the select committee, to just brief him on where our thinking has got to. Um, And I think they're going to publish in January. The the power of the select committee is that it's all party. It takes evidence. It reflects on the evidence and tends to produce an authoritative report that people pay attention to. Um, Now, if you've just been elected as a government and you get a critical uh, or re-elected as government, you get a critical select committee report, you can probably afford to ignore it if you don't like it. But we're at a point in the electoral cycle, and in, in particular, we're at a point where there is uh, the real possibility and indeed probability of a change of government, then uh, the select committee report, I think this time, will really help inform the thinking of the next government. And it'll also... It's a unique piece of timing because Martin Oliver starts as the new chief inspector on the 1st of January and it will inform his thinking too. And I've had some conversation with Martin and I think he he knows that he's got to respond more fully than Amanda has done to date to the criticisms that there have been. Uh, so it will it'll be influential on that. Now, Jonathan, to your wider question, I mean, the, the changes to school inspection. Well, you know, Bridget's already announced some things. They'll be thinking about what they do to go further. And the civil service at some point relatively soon will be starting to think about, okay, what do we know is in the manifestos of the parties? What would our plan be for implementing those manifestos? And they'll obviously be paying particular attention to the Labour manifesto because, you know, then they'll be looking at what the likely outcomes of the election might be. And, you know, the Tories, they're already talking to because they're in government, so they kind of know what the implementation of, of Tory thinking might be because they'll have helped form it. But they'll be looking at that manifesto. So they'll be looking then at the weight of evidence. They might look a bit at, at Beyond Ofsted, even though it's a National Education Union publication, which puts some people off because for some reason they think that the voice of teachers isn't that valid. Um, They'll look at the IPPR report that was produced at the same time. They will properly look at the Select Committee report. And, you know, I gave evidence to the Select Committee, as did many others. So in part, that's a way of beyond Ofsted 
informing that select committee report that, and then in, in turn is highly influential. The government then, or the incoming government then, might produce a white paper to consult on it, or it might just be having a conversation with Martin as the chief inspector, who might have announced some changes in the meantime, of course, because you know, he could announce whatever he wants in January, February time, because uh, he might want to take some of the heat off. But we'll see. But have a conversation with Martin and Offset and say that this is the way we would like you to change. What do you think? And have a negotiation with Ofsted because they are a ministerial department in their own right. And it's not for the department to tell them what they have to do. It's so a negotiation. Amanda Spearman was always very keen to say, particularly when she was under pressure during the summer, she was always very keen to say that some of those things were above her pay grade. And, you know, it was, that was for the government to, to sort of set the parameters for that. What you've just described sounds like you think Martin Oliver will have a bit more independence and leeway. And also, Jim, what you're describing is a bit of a limbo, isn't it, between January and whenever that election takes place. That limbo could be shorter or longer, depending on other factors. But I think what happens in the longer term and even when there is a new government, but actually what happens when we return to school on the 4th of January is also a huge issue because nothing will have gone away over the next couple of weeks that, you know, the the inquest will still be very fresh in people's minds. And some of the other stories that heads and school leaders have been telling will be very fresh in people's minds. So what happens in that in between time? And it is a pause, even an option. I think I don't realistically, I don't anticipate a pause, it would be a big call for the new chief inspector to make. He could say, look, I've reflected since I've been appointed and waiting to take up post. And I've talked to a lot of people and I do think there's a problem. And I'm going to pause the routine inspections while we decide on the best way forward. I could do that. I think that's a massive call for him to make. I think he has got to make a big call, incidentally, uh, in part to deal with that that hiatus that you talk about, Sarah. He's got to do something to win a bit of credit for uh, and to give Ofsted some breathing space. It must be a pretty tricky place to work right now. At the moment, what they, what inspectors will have had a couple of hours of training in being a bit more sensitive than Amanda announced. It'll be interesting when, assuming inspections resume in January, when they do find things that mean that they, they're within the framework, they want to find a school to be inadequate. How are they, or, or RI for that matter, how are they going to deliver that news in a sensitive way? It'll be interesting to see whether anything's changed. We'll just have to see. Yeah, if I were advising Martin, I would say to him, look, and this goes to a little bit of what you've just been asking me about. You are, as chief inspector, responsible for how inspections are carried out and the framework around which inspections are carried out. You're not responsible for how those, the outcomes of the inspection, the judgments, are then used in accountability purposes. That is above your pay grade. That is the the job of the department. So if you wanted to say, I've reflected on it, and I agree with all of those many people who think we should get rid of the single phrase judgment and announce that, I think that's within his power. Now, it would throw the department because they've got a whole accountability system based around those outcomes. But you could say, that's not my problem. That's your problem. 
we're getting rid of the single phrase judgment, we'd still have the, you know, the judgments around the, the different categories, you know, the four or five categories in the framework, and you can use that as you choose to. Could do that. And indeed, the department, if they wanted to, could sort of retrofit the judgment, the overall judgment off the back of taking the judgments on the, on the four or five, but at least publicly, what Ofsted would be doing is getting rid of that one name and shame thing. But yeah, one of the reasons why in our report we've decided we need to go much further than just getting rid of the single phrase judgment. If you just do that, people will in the end retrofit the single phrase judgment for the school anyway. Um, so we've got to, we've got to do a bit better. So that's a long rambling answer, I'm afraid, but as a way of saying, I don't know. Um, but that there's a, there's a tension between the role of inspection and then the role of regulation, which is the department's role. So Jim, your report is called Beyond Offset. Just imagine we have gone beyond offset or offset is transformed in the way that the report describes and its role completely changes. Is that it? Is that enough or does the system need even more beyond that? No, I think the next phase is to properly have an open discussion about regulation, uh, which is the department's job. And at the moment, the department responds to Ofsted findings. How do we best regulate schools? Do we want all schools to become members of multi-academy trusts? Yeah, what's the answer around all of that? I don't want a massive structures thing, but I want to understand how we best regulate schools. And as you said to us earlier, that's a whole nother report and a whole nother podcast, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it is a whole nother report, a whole nother podcast. You know, I haven't been asked or, or resourced to do that piece of work. Yet. Uh, not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that will be beyond beyond Ofsted, which we shall look forward to in the uh, in the future. Way beyond Ofsted. <laughs> the sequel. Well, Jim, this is a tremendous piece of work on behalf of the profession, and I'm sure all those people listening, all those school leaders listening, and I'm, I'm sure Sarah and I thank you for it. I think that anybody who reads it, the first part of it perfectly encapsulates everything that those of us working in schools feel is wrong with the present system, wrong with the uh, Ofsted in its current iteration, and puts forward an extremely credible and balanced alternative. So we're very grateful to you and to the people who've worked on this as well, Jim, for that piece of work on behalf of the profession. It's written by Alice Brebery and Jane Perryman. Uh, so they are the authors, the recommendations of things that, that we agree together. So it's very much their work with my input, uh, and I'd pay tribute to them for that. Given us some hope, I think. Looking forward to a new year, looking forward to an election year, that there might be some change on the way that that we all can feel positive about. Fingers crossed. And thank you for joining us and for giving up your time to talk it through with us, Jim. We're extremely appreciative of that. It's good of you to, to join us. You are our first ennobled guest, I think I can safely say, Sarah, <laughs> so we feel honoured to have had you with us. Yeah, but, but maybe maybe what? when Mick gets knighted, we could have him back as well, because Mick Waters is a yeah. big friend of the show. I did message him on Saturday and say he's the only educational superhero we've got left now, so no pressure on him or anything, but that would be a great one to see you. And thank you very much for the invite. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for the kind words about the report and keep in touch. We will do. Thank you, Jim. Thank you also to our listeners and 
the final podcast of the year. Thank you for listening to our podcast this year. From me and Sarah and our producer, Nigel Murphy, happy holidays, everyone, and we'll see you in the new year. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Take care, everyone.